Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure you visit the Corvette Today merchandise store. You can also sign up for Corvette Today emails, notifications, and updates at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We have over 3,000 members, and I'd love to have you as a member as well. I'm also excited to tell you about the new YouTube channel for Corvette Today. Be sure and check it out and see your favorite Corvette Today podcasts now on YouTube. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Aerolari Wheels, a true forged wheel with over 20 unique design styles to choose from for your C8 and wide-body versions of the C7, C6, and C5 Corvette. It's an absurd value starting at only $19.88 for a set of four fully forged wheels. And use the promo code CT100 for Corvette Today 100 and get $100 off your purchase. Visit aerolari.com. That's A-E-R-O-L-A-R-R-I.com. And use the promo code CT100 for your $100 discount. Also, midenginecorvetteforum.com. The forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette. Meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Also, a shout-out to CanadianCorvetteForum.com, welcoming Corvette owners from around the world. Corvette test driver Jim Miro is back on Corvette today. This time, Jim is answering your questions about America's favorite sports car. Jim, it's great to have you back on the show, and you are my first guest to appear three times on Corvette today. Well, I tell you what, Steve, it's a complete honor. Let's hope the third time's a charm. <laughs> I'd like to, first of all, thank everybody who's not only listening, but submitted questions. I've seen them all. I want to just tell you, if I don't say it at each individual question, they're all great. And also, over the next month or so, I'll do my best to whatever questions we can't get to here, I'll try to do a direct answer to you guys on the forum. Fantastic, Jim. Well, let's get into segment one. Our first question comes from Yellow Dreams, and that's Dreams with a Z. He's from CorvetteForum.com, and it's a two-part question. He asks, what are the biggest challenges that you had to overcome while developing the C7ZR1 suspension and tuning it? And if you could go back and change anything, what would it be? Well, when the C7ZR1 came up and it was introduced in one of the meetings, I thought, holy crap, this is one of my dream cars. What a way to wind up 20, 34 years at General Motors. I knew I was retiring. Nobody else did at the point. So I thought this would be a great car to go out on. The car had big aero, huge horsepower, tons of cooling, all those extra radiators. The challenge was the mass of the car was a little higher than I really desired. And the challenge was more making it drive like a light, agile car. The power to weight looked great. But power to weight is really a straight line effect. Our competitors are typically lighter weight than we are. When you have a power ratio in a heavier car, comparing it to a lighter car, the lighter car wins every time because the fact that the power to weight is a straight line effect, you have to corner, you have to break the heavier cars, so they're at a disadvantage every time. The other thing that concerned me was putting 755 horsepower down to the rear tires. And the Cup 2 tires are awesome on the Z06. At that point, I had no idea what adding another 100 horsepower would be like. But we developed those tires back in 2013, and this is a 2019 car. And I've said it before, Lee Willards is a tire genius. He's the best tire guy I've ever met. And I've seen him do magic in a few months, let alone six years. Having said that, the first time we drove the car, all that was put to ease because the car drove fine on the Cup 2 tires, even though I know the car would have been significantly better with a newer tire. At the same point, I had just revised all my magnetic ride tuning philosophy on the C7Z06, so it was a big revelation. So I took all those learnings for the Z06, and I basically armchair calibration for the ZR1. And as the CR1 progressed, so did the calibrations. As the calibrations progressed, 
the car just became more of a darling on the racetrack. The thing is, every time we went to a new track, we were putting down lap times that we didn't think we would ever achieve. One of them was at VIR. A couple of us were running 151s on the full course. I mean, I remember back in the days when we were just trying to get the C6 ZR1 under two minutes, and it was just, this car is going to be really good. The second part of the question is, if I could change anything, what would it be? Based on what I said initially, it would have been absolutely new tires. I did everything I could to convince the platform to go with new tires, but there's a business case that I'm not responsible. If I were responsible for it, GM probably would have gone broke. When I talk about those Cup 2 tires, I'll talk about what Porsche's got going on. They never considered a Cup-style tire until we did the Cup 2 for the Z06. I'll, I'll just digress to a funny story that happened at the Nürburgring. I was out in the C7 Z06, and there was a Porsche guy behind me. I can't remember what he had, but he was making at least as much power as I was, maybe more. The part of the track that it's probably 40 seconds in, it's called Quiddlebach Ho. It's where the Nissan went into the crowd and they decide to take the radius of that jump down. So that was all under construction. So we had to basically narrow you down to one lane. You had to go 30 miles an hour. So we're going up this hill 30 miles an hour. Then it opens up to a massive long straightaway. He was almost touching my bumper. And it got to the point where he got a little better jump out of the construction zone than I did. And he was back and forth and he clearly wanted to get around me, but he couldn't go unless I signaled him to pass. And I got to the next corner, which was a turn going down into the foxhole or a uh, And I just said, let me get through this first turn and I'll never see the guy again. And probably a minute later, he was gone out of my mirrors. Now, this is before they had the Cup 2R tire. So I finished the lap, and the Porsche guy, I think he came in, and there was a couple other cars sitting up at the paddock, and Mark Royce and Dan Amon were there. And I came in, and the Porsche guys were looking at our car, which typically doesn't happen too often, in the paddock. And I think it was Royce just looked at the drivers, and these weren't their development drivers, these were factory drivers. And he said, listen, boys, it's not just the tires. <laughs> so <laughs> the reason I tell that story is because one year later, guess what? The Porsche had the Cup 2R tires. And I guarantee you, it was a direct result of what we were doing. And I also know for sure that had we gotten a new tire, it would have been better than the Porsche got. Yeah. That's a kind of a long answer to a shorter question, but I just wanted to kind of give that whole history of how things for the, for the ZR1 progressed and how it actually affected the ZR1 and the Z06 affected what other companies did. Absolutely. That's a great story too. Jim, our next question comes from Jack Frost PDX from midenginecorvetteforum.com. He says, what do you think of MSRC technology in general and how it has evolved at GM over time? And the second part of the question is, should we be adding it to our C8 Corvette if we're not going to track the car? Okay. I'll give you a little history on how the evolution of magnetic ride progressed. When I first got introduced to it in the early 2000s, it was a love-hate relationship. I was having trouble with it. I found a lot of flaws with it when I started doing my own shock dyno testing. It's like, here I am doing magnetic ride for my business. And back then, it was a battle. I was fighting with Delphi all the time. And it got to the point where they were convinced that I was trying to get them off the car and another manufacturer on the car. They thought I was in bed with a manufacturer because I was so adamant about getting them to fix these problems. And the other part of the frustration is out of all the people using it, I was the only one complaining about it. Everybody else seemed happy, but I'm like, no, they're experiencing the same problems as I am. They just don't know it. Hmm. But over time, Delphi became open-minded and they said, okay, we'll start running our own tests. Lo and behold, they found the same results I did. And boom, full court press. To their credit, they put all hands on deck to correct these issues. And I'm telling you, they did. The fixes they implemented were so good, I wanted to change the way we used magnetic ride. So up to the C6 ZR1, only time we used magnetic ride was as an option on the base car. It was just the FE1 with the passive dampers and magnetic ride was an option. And then the rest of the packages were on regular shocks. I wanted to change the way we did that. So with the C6 ZR1, I said, instead of taking a base car and trying to make some perceived handling, even though the car did handle better, it was more perceived than what I would like. I wanted to take the hardcore track ZR1, the C6 ZR1, and use magnetic ride to make it ride better. So you would get the best of both worlds. And I was able to convince Dave Hill to let me take the car in that direction because it was a big step. We had never done this before, but all the electrical architecture for the ZR1 had to be changed to include magnetic ride. 
And he bought into it, him and then later Tom Wallace, you know, came out to be a great car, even though we've improved it since. I was really happy with the way the car turned out. And it was shortly after that, at C6ZR1, other motor companies were picking up Magnetic Ride, BMW, all the way up to and including Ferrari. So wow, that was just a big transition. And even since that C6ZR1, BWI is just continually to improve the product up to what's on the C8, better software, better hardware, better data. They're totally committed. You know, the rest is pretty much history. Right. Now for the second part of the question, let me put it this way. I've been on record saying that in my mind, no Corvette should be sold without magnetic ride. Yeah. But I've also said I'm not in charge of the business case. Like I said before, GM probably would have gone broke if I were. <laughs> but I know they have to keep the base price of that car as low as possible. And relative to the track versus the street use of magnetic ride, it's actually more beneficial on the street than it is on the track. Hmm. On the track, it's huge. But if you look at, say, a regular shock Corvette, that car has to be capable of driving up to 200 miles per hour, driving exceptional up to 200 miles per hour. So if I have to make it drive exceptional at 200 miles per hour, that means that those kind of speeds, I have to add a lot of damping. Well, anything I do to make the car drive good at 200 miles an hour I own at 50 miles per hour. So the car is totally compromised with magnetic ride. Everything I do at, say, 50 miles an hour or virtually your daily driving, I can scale all those damping factors for high speed. So whatever I do to make the car drive good at up to 200 miles an hour doesn't affect anything I did at 50 miles per hour. Gotcha. Also, magnetic ride has great handling algorithms. So if you take a base car or a FE2, I can give the car more agility, better steering response, flatter cornering by just using the algorithms with magnetic ride. But if you want those same attributes with a passive damper, you got to put in higher spring rates, bigger stabilizer bars increase the damping, which will make the car just ride significantly worse. Hmm. Amazing. Pretty cool. Pretty cool technology. Absolutely right. Buddy, our next question comes from Telepierre from CorvetteForum.com. He says he'd like to know if you can share some Corvette team thinking on the Nürburgring record attempts and the reaction to competitors' efforts. We know by now that General Motors' approach is platform tuning first and fast lap is the second priority. And then there's a second part of this question as well. It would be interesting to discuss what happens, if anything happens, when you learn of a new record. What happens after that? Well, okay, I'm going to attack the second part of this question first. From a corporate standpoint, when somebody put out a lap time in an official capacity, we never talked about it. We didn't spend much time. What can you do? The Nürburgring lap times are honor system, right? You just got to assume that they ran it straight up like we do. We had bigger fish to fry. There's always new variants coming down the line. It was pointless spending any time reflecting or considering doing anything about a competitor's lap time. All we knew is we just needed to put our best car forward and let the results speak for themselves. Now, having said that, on a personal level, a little different. When I would see a lap time posted, let me step back. Okay, I love being an engineer. I loved it since I was young, but more than being an engineer, I loved racing cars and honing my driving skills. And anything track-related, whether it be when I was racing or on the Corvette, is very personal to me. So clearly, when somebody put out a lap time, they made me go, what? I couldn't resist digging deeper into it. And I did this on my own time at home at night. I would do my own little analysis and I had some fairly decent tools without going into a lot of detail. But when somebody would post their video, because I heard a time that I needed the video, then I could do my own analysis based on the video because I had the data for my cars and I would look at their entry speed, their exit speed in a certain corner, the corner duration, acceleration to the break point of the next corner, I'd use things like power to weight, mass downforce, aerodynamics, and then I could come up with a pretty good idea if that lap time was legit because I could always refer back to the data that I had. By then, we had a lot of laps. I knew all those things for my car, and I could use the video to compare it to those cars. After I got the result, I never took it to the company. It was for my own satisfaction. Right. GM wouldn't speak out because Porsche did that to Nissan probably 10 years ago, and it amounted to nothing. Now, digress back to the first part of the question. There was always a lot more effort in achieving lap times put forth by other companies. We knew that, and we knew what they put into it. It just wasn't one of our priorities. At least it wasn't our highest priority. We didn't have the luxury of spending loads of time in Germany with the same single objective of laying down a lap time. You know, I know when the GTR was there, I think they did their fastest slide 709. 
they were there all summer long. They were there for five months. Wow. But we were there, we would do our one or two trips and all we could do is make the car drive exceptional on the Nürburgring and the Autobahn. And then a byproduct of making the car drive exceptional on the ring was a faster lap time. So when comparing to what they do to what we do, the probably the best analogy I ever heard was I was at a Corvette Corral. I think it was back shortly after around the C6 ZR1. And Taj was giving a speech to put things in their proper perspective. He was comparing us to the GTR. They posted a video. He said there was probably 20 or 30 people over there supporting the GTR, probably five, six, seven cars. And he said, in comparison, we sent Merrill Mosier, a technician, and a (laughs) six-pack. That's awesome. I never forgot that one. That's great. That's a great response from Taj. All right, buddy. Our next question comes from John Elegant from midenginecorvetteforum.com. He asks, what are the most rewarding specific track experiences you've had while testing Corvette? Well, that list is long. The first one is not because of ultimate lap times. When everything comes together, when you're doing a new generation of a car, there are so many disciplines that have to work in harmony. And in the beginning, these disciplines are all kind of doing their own thing. Things like powertrain, powertrain cooling, which those guys are awesome. Transmission algorithms, the chassis tires, ELSD calibrations, performance traction calibrations, brakes and cooling, aerodynamics. You come out of the box and more than not, the car didn't come out up to anyone's expectations. And obviously the pressure and expectations were so high, the pressure was immense. And when you come out of the box and you're like, oh my God, this thing, it won't go for the turn or it's doing this or doing that. I'll cite the C7 Stingray. The first time we tested that on the track, it was marginal at best. It was a big disappointment. But we had a huge dedicated team. That's when you kind of go to work. You start gelling and putting the combined disciplines together. And when it all comes down and then two or three sessions later, you go out and the car just makes this transformation. It's completely euphoric. You're like, okay, now everybody feels we're all progressing forward. And we know this thing is going to be a rock star because even though it made the transition, we have not started to refine it. And all it's going to do is get better over time. If I were to talk about my individual laps or lap times, you know, you and I have talked about, we got a lot of Nürburgring track experience we want to share in future podcasts. So I'm just going to share probably one, and people may not expect this, the C7 Z06, the 710, but it was actually the time was the actual time we didn't achieve our objective of sub seven minute lap. It was at 704 I did in the C7 ZR1. And the reason for that is because I had to start the lap on cold tires. For that one lap, I had to go back and use every skill I'd learned over 33 years of racing, Corvette development, just to get it around the track. Wow. And I'm talking about a car, I said it before, it was perfect an hour before, and it was perfect the next morning. But when you start on cold tires, all bets are off. Yeah. To properly warm the tires, you need tractive force, normal forces, and I had to use slip angles, and I'm telling you, the slip angles were massive. Everybody doesn't know what a slip angle is. It's the angle created from the direction of the tires to the direction of the car. So say you come up to a turn, and the car's just got a ton of understeer. So the car's going straight. The tires are turned. So that angle is what we call a slip angle. And also, the car would transition from understeer to oversteer. So you'd finally get the car to turn in, and then the back end would come around. That lap was just me reacting to the car trying to do whatever I get to go through the corner. Even four minutes into the lap, I almost wrecked the car several times. Wow. Even though it was a complete disappointment because it wasn't sub seven, I thought as I was driving, I'm thinking it's going to be north of 715. So from a personal standpoint, that was probably the lap. Sure, we'll probably never see, but that was something that I was pretty happy with, even though the circumstances were less than desirable. For sure. Well, Jim, our final question in segment one comes from RKC RLR, and he's on midenginecorvetteforum.com. He asks, do you feel a difference between the FE1 and the FE3 suspension when driving in a spirited manner that would still be considered safe and sane on the street? And then the second part of this question is, what about FE2 and FE4 suspension? Well, there's a significant difference between FE1 and FE3. The FE3 needs to be track capable, even though they're both passive damped. That means the FE3 needs bigger bars, more aggressive damping, higher spring rates, better tires. So everything we do to make the FE3 exceptional on the track will directly result in a better kind of car for street driving when it comes to cornering. The same thing goes for the comparison between the FE2 and the FE4. The progression between those two cars, even though the FE1 and FE3 on passive damp, the FE2 and the FE4 on magnetic ride, that's the difference is the FE3 and the FE4 have to be track-oriented. 
All right. Well, buddy, let's take our first break. And when we come back, we'll answer more questions. Jim Miro, Corvette test driver, is answering your questions on Corvette Today. Stretch the life of your Corvette's paint with Nova Stretch Performance Protective Covers. Nova Stretch Covers provide superior protection for your C5 through C8 Corvette, utilizing stretch fabric technology and an innovative fastening system for quick installation and easy removal and storage. Made in the USA for a tailored fit, the patented design and breathable mesh protects your Corvette without rubbing or chafing the paint like traditional bras. And unlike clear film solutions, Nova Stretch provides full front-end coverage including the grill, keeping radiators and heat exchangers clean without creating airflow issues. Visit NovaStretch.com and use the code CorvetteToday15 to get 15% off your order. Protect your Corvette with Nova Stretch. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want to, but what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is Corvette test driver Jim Merrow, and Jim is answering your questions on America's favorite sports car. In segment number two, we'll start with Bear Z06, Jim. He's from CorvetteForum.com, and he asks, how important is it to have rear caster set when getting an alignment? The reason he asks is because he had a GM technician that said it's a waste of time. Well, the GM tech was wrong. Like uh, compared to the C7 magnetic ride upgrades, the dealers have been anything just north of disappointing. And the same with setting the rear caster. I've had a lot of people contact me on the forum and said the dealer won't set the rear caster. And the rear caster is very important. We purposely made the C7's rear lower control arms adjustable, both the front and the rear inboard attachments, so you can maintain zero caster when adjusting camber. The reason for that is that sixth generation car only had the rear attachment adjustable for increasing or decreasing camber. But when you adjust the camber on the C6, you add rear caster because you're moving the rear attachment outboard, which means the lower ball joint forward. Now when the car goes into rebound and compression, as well as roll, the ball joints in the side of you are no longer linear. Lower ball joint follows a different path than the upper ball joint, and what that does is create a steer effect. A steer effect in compression, rebound, and roll is very undesirable in the rear of the car. So the C7, we said, okay, we want to maintain zero caster so you can adjust the both ends. And then in the side view, the ball joints remain linear when they go into compression and rebound, and there's no steer effects at all. The disappointing thing is it's not hard to monitor the rear caster when you're sitting in the camber. There's a tool available. All they do is put it on the knuckle, and then they can adjust the front and the rear attachment on the lower control arm and watch the caster gauge. It's just an angle finder that's attached to the knuckle. And just make sure it stays at zero as you increase the camber. So it's not hard to do. And to my life, I have no idea why the dealers simply won't do it. That's kind of crazy. And it's very important. It is very important. It is. Our next question comes from a person named MidEngine, and they're from MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. We all know and greatly appreciate your track testing work for General Motors. Was there other Corvette development work that you did off the track? Oh, absolutely. First, there was the same boring meetings and paperwork. I had to do that everybody else had to do. (laughs) However, there was a lot of responsibility developing the car on the street. As much time as we worked developing the car on the track, it was incredibly important for me to develop it as good or better on the street. I know that Heritage of Corvette is racetrack bred, and we put a lot of time and effort in making sure that no one's disappointed on the track. But I really take the heart to make sure that car is a good daily driver. 
I would, off the top of my head, estimate for every hour I was on the track, I was probably 50 hours on the public roads. Wow. It was very, very important that guys can use the car not only as a track car, but as a daily driver. And I know most people don't track the car. They're buying the car to drive it every day. And I can't disappoint them. I want to make sure that this is a car that they're wanting to walk out of the house and enjoy driving to and from work. I wanted to make sure it was really good for that. For tour and sport, I would find the absolute worst roads in Michigan, which they're really bad here. <laughs> and I would spend just weeks and weeks refining the calibrations to make sure that any kind of rough road, the car would behave the way it should. And then I would also, for every package, go down to southeastern Ohio and do mag ride and steering for up to 12 hours a day for weeks at a time. But I will say, <laughs> probably one of my favorite things was doing was doing all that, but on the Autobahn. As much as I loved developing the car on the racetrack, there was nothing like spending a Saturday or Sunday 150 to 200 miles an hour doing mag ride and steering. That's one of those things that I can't believe that people do this. So as much as I love tuning the car on the track, doing the ride work was okay, but it was very important. But man, going down to Southeastern Ohio and the Autobahn were very close seconds. Absolutely. Almost makes me want to live in Germany to just drive on the Autobahn every day. Oh, I'm telling you. First time we did it, I just said, I don't believe that other people do this. It was awesome. That's amazing. All right. Our next question comes from Range96 from CorvetteForum.com. He says, does Camber decrease when the suspension is compressed? And if so, why? And what aftermarket suspension and or chassis products do you recommend, if any? Okay. So first of all, negative camber increases as the suspension goes into compression. And that's why the upper control arm is shorter than the lower control arm. So in the rear view, the suspension goes into compression. The upper control arm ball joint has a more aggressive curve than the lower ball joint that increases camber. So just the opposite of the way you ask. As far as the aftermarket products, I never dabbled a lot in seeing what was out there. When I was employed, I was totally focused on production. But after I retired, I did look, I interacted with a few folks who purchased aftermarket stuff. Most of them, the reason they contacted me, were not satisfied with their purchase. So I looked through a couple of these packages, and I know a lot of these companies are selling packages that I know were not developed to the extent that we did. It was almost like a perceived thing, you know, tie it down and they'll, they'll think it handles better. Right. As a matter of fact, shortly after I retired, I was offered an opportunity to endorse, I think it was a bar of spring packages. I can't remember who it was from. But in good conscience, I refused to do it simply because if I didn't develop it or at least evaluated it, I couldn't put my name on it. That's not to say that if somebody has a certain driving style and really, really knows what they're doing, they could select certain aftermarket products to tailor the car to the way they drive. Say they wanted less roll or more or less understeer. You can buy bars that do that. The thing is, you just got to be able to monitor some simple calculations of how much you're actually adding. Adding three millimeters to a diameter of a stabilizer bar is a huge change because the diameter torsional stiffness is to the fourth power. You want to make sure that you really know what you're doing. And if you just want to take the car and increase the roll stiffness, maintaining the attitude or understeer-oversteer relationship, then you want to make sure you calculate the roll stiffness of the front bar to the rear bar and how much you're changing. Make sure the changes are in the same magnitude. We call it the roll couple distribution or the tire lateral load transfer distribution between the front and the rear is maintained, and that's very important. Gotcha. All right, our next question is from SK08. He's from midenginecorvetteforum.com, and he asks, will lowering the ride height of a Corvette with MSRC affect the way the MSRC operates? Are there any problems or concerns? I'm glad he asked that because I have lowered my C7 Stingray on the stock bolts, so this is something I'm very interested in too. And I'll speak to everything up through C7. The dampers are very linear through zero. So lowering the car will have little if no effect on the dynamics. The only concern would be ride height issues, right hitting curbs and things like that. So no, up through C7, C6 and C7, you're fine lowering the car and maintaining the drivability. Excellent. All right. And our last question in this section, Jim, is from Skank from CorvecForum.com. He says, could you give an idea of what the ratio of segment timing versus actual time runs is? He's assuming that it's impossible to match a perfect theoretical segment timed lap versus one to a perfect hot lap that you ran. What percentages would there be, if any? Okay, so this is this might be a little longer answer because segment timing on the Nürburgring is so important. 
Segment time is the only way to get an idea of where you would be on a timed lap. If you look at the Nürburgring, there's probably in the neighborhood of 50, maybe 70 cars on the track at the same time. Wow. And when you're one of the fastest cars out there, you're encountering traffic all the time. There's instruction going on. You'll see two cars running together. Like in a lot of the videos that you can see, they have big L's on the rear window. That means that's a learning or a training car. There's SUVs out there. There's cars running durability tests. And the thing is, you can't pass unless you're signaled to do so. So you can come up on a car until you see his turn signal go on, and, and that would be the direction he's going to go. And also the fact that he acknowledges he sees you, you can't pass him. And there's some guys out there who would never pay attention, and you'd run through a minute minute of lap right on his tail. He didn't know you were there. I would go out on a warm-up lap to heat the tires in any of the C7s or the C6s. For us, a warm-up lap would be about eight minutes. And I would do the entire lap, and I wouldn't see another car. I'm thinking, oh, my God, got the track to myself, especially if it was early in the morning or right before the track closed. You come to the start-finish area, you start the hot lap, and within 30 seconds, you're already encountering traffic. Just like a complete letdown. So with all that traffic, it's very hard to get an idea of how fast you're running because you'll get segments well, I passed four or five cars and still pretty fast lap. And you come around at 7.35, 7.40. So you really have no idea how fast the car is going. And I'm not sure if any of the folks out there know who Jeff Mosier is. Jeff's done several seminars at the Bash. He was our analysis and simulation engineer. He's a big boss now because he's so smart. During the C6 years, I didn't want him sitting behind a desk and just going through simulation programs. I wanted him to come to the track with us. We came up with a program and treated our analysis engineers kind of like Pratt and Miller did. They were at the track with us all the time, compiling data. You know, actually, we had Jeff go with Pratt and Miller to understand how they did it. Then when we started going to the track, when we downloaded data, it took an hour, an hour and a half to analyze it all. Jeff wrote a program, I call it the Savior Program, to compile all our data analysis. It was one download, and it would break each of the guys, the thermal stuff, the powertrain stuff, the chassis stuff, the simulation stuff. Those guys would have everything they got in an hour and a half before in five minutes. Wow. But part of that simulation program was segment timing. When we record data for development, we use what's called an RT sensor. An RT sensor is a military-grade GPS. I think it's accurate to within millimeters. Let's put it this way. RT sensors were used to guide ballistic missiles. <laughs> so because of that, when we went to Germany, shipping those was a huge undertaking. They took an act of God, several weeks, and a bunch of paperwork to get them over there. What Jeff did is he broke the Nürburgring into 42 segments. Each segment had a either a complete corner or a series of maybe two to three turns as part of the segment. And it's important to make sure you do complete turns because say you take a turn and break it into a segment as corner entry to apex and the next segment is apex to corner exit. Well, you can come into that corner super hot, get it to the apex, and then blow the exit. And then the next lap, come in fairly slow, but get a good shot out. And you would get that second segment. Then you would have a segment time that's unrealistic that you could never do because you can't drive the corner from corner entry to corner exits like those two segments. Jeff really put a lot of thought into it. And as we were accumulating laps during our industry pool testing, we would then start getting an idea of what we could do on a single lap. And the way it worked is when we downloaded the data, I would get the file, I would put it into an analysis program, and then it would spit out a table of these 42 segments that I just did in that session. It would be two, three, four, or five laps. I would get a time for each of the 42 segments. And it would put that table into a bigger table with all the previous sessions I had run up to that time. Wow. Then then it would color code the segment times green and red. So over a week or two, when you're getting up to 30 laps, that segment sheet became very large. The beauty of the color coding was you can immediately look and see, okay, this was a fast segment, this was a fast segment. So it would compare everything you had run, 30, 40 laps, and it would just say, here's the fastest segment. And then it would take all those green segments, combine them, and that's where you would get your theoretical lap. That's how we utilize the segment table. Now, when we talk about matching the segment times or time becoming unattainable, there's certain truth to that. Let me kind of explain that. So when you're doing all your development, then it's fast lap time. I'm not sure where it comes from, but you suddenly go to a different place mentally. You know, when you take that first turn and the stopwatch is on and you think, oh, it may be like any other lap. It's not. It's completely different. Everything changes. You have to be very disciplined. It's like running a 13-mile qualifying lap. You got to stay in the moment. 
You can't think about developing and your mind has been processing your development for what, two weeks at that point. Well, you got to step away from that and go into, you no longer think about development. You can't get ahead of yourself. And that's easy to do. You got to stay in the moment. Absolutely. And somehow the speed and the time just happened just because you're being more disciplined. And also when you're driving during industry pool, you're not thinking about anything that resembles a fast lap because you know you're not going to get it because of all the traffic. So I think subconsciously you become a little complacent and not going to that place you do when you know you are going for time. Also, when you're developing a car, you have to drive consistency. Consistency is the most important thing when your A-being changes. So you got to drive 95 to 98% every single lap and doing it for up to 150 turns so you can make sure you get a good feel for what your changes are and if it makes the car drive better. When you're in development mode, you're thinking about changes. You're driving the car, and all you're thinking about is processing what the car is doing and what, what your next change is going to be. You're doing all that while you're driving. And so then you spend all this time, up to two weeks, doing that. Then it's fast lap time. The track is completely yours. only objective is speed and time. Then you go into race mode. Digressing back to when I said I historically beat the segments, those are the segments that I obtained during two weeks of industry pool throughout traffic and things like that. The longer we drive, that segment time tends to flatten out or the improvements in it. I mean, we'll go out for a tank of fuel and I'll come in and start running the numbers. We would be elated if we picked up a few tenths of a second or dropped that theoretical lap a few tenths of a second. But when I finished a fast lap, say for the C7, C06, I had two one-lap sessions at the end of the day for fast lap. So after I do a fast lap, if I put that data into the segment table, the time decreases by two or three seconds. Wow. So then when you start including fast laps into the segment table, that's when the time becomes unattainable because now you're getting closer to have to drive to complete perfection. I've said it before. If you ask any race car driver if they've ever driven a perfect lap, the answer is always going to be no. If you could drive to perfection, how fast the car would be. For instance, I'll say, I think our segment time for the C7Z06 was like a 713 of all the industry pool data that we got. After I ran those two fast laps, it went down to like 707. The car is capable of a 707, maybe a 706. You got to be perfect. Absolutely right. Well, buddy, let's take our final break. And when we come back in segment three, we'll finish up our questions asked by you with Jim Merrow, Corvette test driver on Corvette Today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat at AmericanHydrocarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me is famed Corvette test driver, Jim Miro, and Jim's answering your questions about America's favorite sports car. Jim, in this final segment, we'll start with Irv Bulldog, 72. He's from Corvette Forum, and he asks, if you had fewer mandates and budget constraints on the C7 chassis development, was it still locked in the C7 suspension? What would you have done differently? And also, did GM ever test a fixed roof on the C7? Well, the first part of that question is easy. There would be three things that would have changed. First is tires. Second is tires. The third would have been tires. <laughs> I spoke in one of the earlier segments answering a question about the development of the Cup 2 tires and how much better they would have been if we did a ZR1 tire. Anybody knows me knows that tires are anything. Probably the second thing I would have done is maybe had more adjustability in the rear wing. Obviously, for safety, the thought was to do two positions, the street position and the track position. Right. 
The track position was determined by, we had a bunch of our high-performance drivers. All of them had different driving styles, and that's one of the tough things to do when you do a track-oriented car is when you're tuning for the masses, you got to somehow accommodate a bunch of different driving styles. So the wing settings were very conservative. We had it higher for more rear downforce. For my personal driving, I would have liked to lower the wing because I like the car a bit more freer than most of the people do. But that's just not a good thing to do for the masses. You want to deviate to the side of understeer. Relative to the second part of the question is, like you said, I'm one of those people who never took the roof off the car. Over 15 years on the Corvette, I might have put the convertible top down one time, and I never took a roof off the car. I will say I don't think we ever thought about or talked about a fixed roof on the C7. The objective for the seventh generation car with the top off was to have the same structural rigidity as a C6 with the roof bolted on. So the C7 structure is very, very robust. I don't know what the first bending and first torsion numbers would have been for the C7 if you had bolted the roof in as opposed to clamped it on. And also, I don't know if there's anything aftermarket out there relative to bolting in a C7 roof. Our next question, Jim, comes from Max Powers from midenginecorvetteform.com. He says, I understand the benefits of transverse composite leaf springs, but if they're so good, why don't other cars use them? That's a good question. Sure is. When you look at it from a tire patch perspective, the tire patch doesn't care what kind of spring damper system is on the car. It just needs them both to work together. And there are benefits to the composite leaf. They're very light and they do add roll stiffness. However, there's a lot of engineering drawbacks to the composite leaf. When you compare it to a coil spring, first of all, they're very big. They take up a lot of room where other things could potentially be packaged. They're very expensive. So the tuning library is very limited because it just costs a fortune to prototype those springs. So we were limited on what we could get for tuning. Say you got your original library and you want another rate, it took weeks, maybe a month, maybe longer for them to prototype a spring so you get it. So you all that downtime. Changing them is a pain in the butt. Changing a coil spring takes a fraction of the time. I mean, you can do it in minutes. And when you're at the racetrack, that time is precious, and also that time is money. Also, with coil springs, you can maintain your ride height and cross weights by taking a few measurements before you remove the spring and resetting it after you install the new spring, where if you do a leaf spring at the track, you got to go back to ground zero and do the complete alignment over. Yeah. And the other thing is adjusting for ride heights you know, and cross weights. The leaf spring is a pain because you got to get under the car. You have to be able to use this special tool to lift the spring off the control arm, make your adjustment. Then you got to roll the car out, make sure the puck is not binding up on the control arm. So basically, the move to call springs on the C8 was a really good piece of business. Yeah, probably was for sure. Jim, our next question is from A.O. Zora on CorvetteForum.com. And he asks, I know that you've touched on this recently, but in your opinion, will the C8 Z06 with a Z07 trim and the Cup 2R tires make a sub-7 Nürburgring time? Will it make sub-7? Well, that remains to be seen. Based on my answer on the Corvette forum that kind of took on a life of its own that I wasn't expecting, I think it should. I'll give you some of my rationale that was off the top of my head. I call it my armchair simulation, and I'm pretty comfortable with it. And in the past, my armchair simulation was actually some closer than some of our objective simulations. My thought process during the answer to that question in the forum was, first of all, I compared it to my C7 710. At first, it was just because Z06 to Z06. But also, my C7 C06 time was an actual bona fide time. Warm-up lap, everything worked as it should have. Right. I didn't use a ZR1 because I have no idea how fast I would have gone given a warm-up lap on a clear track. So I just wanted to make sure that I was comparing it to something that we actually did. Right. Back to my armchair analysis, it's clear by now that I'm all about tires. Now, when I compared the Cup 1 to the Cup 2 tires, I believe, I think we got about a two-second lap time improvement on the Cup 2 to the Cup 1. Then, if I consider the Cup 2s to the Cup 2Rs, for us, it could have been maybe a Cup 2R+. plus. That would have been another significant reduction in time. So, then you think about the DCT. The 710 that I ran was in a manual. So, I basically used second through fifth gear. DCT has way more gears available to keep the engine its power band. The DCT shifts are lightning quick, much faster than a manual. And I said it before, I have no idea what the CH-Z06's horsepower is going to come in at. I find it hard to believe that it'll be less than a C7-Z06. So I think there'll be a horsepower advantage. I think about performance traction management. 
Like MagnaRide, every generation, PTM gets better and better. Having said that, I chose not to run PTM. In the C7Z06 at the Nürburgring, I had everything off except for ABS. And that's because in the corners at the Nürburgring, where PTM really worked well, I could drive just as fast or without it. However, on the Nürburgring, there were some corners where PTM just pulled the car down a little too much than what I liked. And in those corners, data showed that I was faster without it. So I ran without it. But having said that, I would never recommend any owner run without it. It is a good system. Unless you're at the top of your game, you really want it on. If you look at it from the C6 through the C7, if the improvements for PTM continue through C8, believe me, I'm sure it'd be a technology even I would have embraced. So summing it all up, I think I said 12 to 14 seconds, and I think that's doable. I'll also put a caveat in that I've never driven a C8. I don't know the dynamics of the car, but I see no reason why it shouldn't be stellar. Just a little sidebar here is there was a photograph that the person looked like me in the passenger seat. And I've been asked by a bunch of people, was I at the Nürburgring for any of that CA testing? And the answer is no, that photo was just another super good looking dude. (laughs) Absolutely right, buddy. All right. Our next question comes from Little Cuda from midenginecorvetteforum.com. And he asks, are all C6 magnetic ride shocks interchangeable? And are the different characteristics based on the application, like Grand Sport versus Z06 versus ZR1? Yeah, so I've got to go by memory on this one. But when it comes to just the piston and the shock, which is everything, there were two different shocks. The FE2, or base with magnetic ride, the Grand Sport, the Z06 without Z07, 427 convertible, and the ZR1 and the Z06 with Z07 without cup tires, all the same shock. The Z06 with Z07 and the ZR1 with cup tires had a different shock or piston. And the differences between those two were fairly mild changes made in the piston just to add more hydraulic damping at very low shock velocities. Now, there might have been some mild changes based on the way we trim the cars for compression and rebound travel. I think those were only a few millimeters in either direction. So I really can't remember specifics on that. Gotcha. Well, that's okay. Our next question comes from Mark Avet from CorvetteForum.com, and he asks, what would you recommend for suspension on a C6 Grand Sport without MSRC that sees track use on an advanced slash instructor level, but is mostly a street car? And he says, note, they likely had to compromise more for the street for the Grand Sport, but if you were to compromise more for the track, what would you change? Okay, so so first let me start by saying I believe the C6 Grand Sport with passive dampers was only combined with an automatic and a convertible. That car was never intended to see a racetrack. And that's why that car did not have a dry sump oiling system. They were all wet sumps. I remember back when we were doing the C6 Grand Sport, Tom Wallace, who was a chief engineer at the time, he said, we will never put a dry sump in any Grand Sport. So we tested and we tested with the wet sump and we can never get adequate oil pressure on the racetrack. You know, finally, you know, it was like we were getting really worried. And finally, we were hitting our drop dead date. If we ever wanted to think about implementing a dry sump system, we were in that final meeting and Tom was sitting at the back of the room and he just starts laughing. And we're like, what the hell are you laughing about? He goes, I knew. I just want to put you guys back against the wall. You've convinced me that the car needs a dry sump. You're going to get your dry sump. Wow. So the reason I digress back on that piece of history is I remember back testing with the wet stump. And so my first recommendation would be if you're going to go hardcore track, you need to find an aftermarket dry sump system to put on the car. At that point, now you're going to make the car more capable. I would probably go with different shocks, something that's adjustable. I would assume that you're not going to run anything that comes close to those old Goodyear F1 supercar tires because those things were marginal on the track at best. So I would then assume you're going to go with a tire with a lot more grip. Then you're going to want to start looking at higher spring rates, increase roll stiffness by stabilizer bars, tune it basically to your driving style. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Jim, our final question is from Mid-Year Roadster on CorvetteForum.com. He says, can you really tune the suspension to give a smoother ride on a C6? Absolutely. The history of how we how the magnetic ride calibrations progressed from C5 to C6 to C7 is very well documented. Back in the 2000s, magnetic ride was really new technology. We were just cutting our teeth with tuning philosophies, understanding the authority of the system. Even though we've improved it, we really were satisfied and felt we did a good job with the cars. But over 10 to 12 years, you get more experience with the software. 
You've got a bunch more bench test data from the supplier. Helps you understand the relationship between mechanical and the electrical attributes of the system. And all that led up to a total, complete major change in tuning philosophies and strategies with the 2019 seventh generation cars. Basically, just taking those philosophies and implementing them into the sixth generation car, the improvements in the sixth generation car are as good as or more better than what we saw in the seventh generation car. That's a good question and a great answer too, buddy. Thanks. Thank you. Jim, before we go, let's talk about your business and what you do because you travel all over the country tuning cars, and that's really a cool deal. You got a trip coming up, as a matter of fact. Yeah. As I just stated in that last question, I wanted to be able to get the sixth generation cars the same level or better improvement to the seventh generation cars. So after I retired, I said, what the hell, I'll give it a try. And I did. It came out really good. So now if you have a 2009 or a 2013 Corvette with magnetic ride, we can either directly program the car or send you a module with the new programming in it. Everything comes with a 100% money back guarantee. We've done over 400 cars, and we're still lucky to be at 100% satisfaction. Contact me on my website, jimmerrill.com. There you go. And you can write to Jim at jim at jimmerrill.com. And like Jim said earlier in the podcast, he's going to get back to the corvetteforum.com questions as well as the mid-engine corvetteforum.com questions and answer those. So if you do have some other questions, you can ask them right through those two websites. Just give me a month or two to do that because we're getting ready for this big trip. It's going to take three weeks. So I will get to them though, I promise. That sounds great. Jim, thanks so much for being on Corvette today again. We appreciate your time and answering all these questions and congratulations and continued success it's been an honor steve i'm just over the top humbled by the fact that this is my third time doing this buddy i love having you on the show we'll have to do it again soon thanks for listening to corvette today and please be sure to tell your family friends and other corvette enthusiasts about the corvette today podcast and also thanks to our flagship sponsors american hydrocarbon at americanhydrocarbon.com true wealth and company at retirewithtrue.com also Aerolari wheels get 100 off your purchase with the promo code ct100 at aerolari.com also, Nova Stretch Bras. Use the code Corvette Today 15 and get 15% off your total purchase at NovaStretch.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at Steve Garrett DJ. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.